Acts 7 is a long trial scene. Stephen is the accused. He stands in the dock. Witnesses are brought forward against Stephen. The Sanhedrin sits in the position of prosecutor and judge. And yet, like most of the trial scenes in the New Testament, this trial scene gets turned around and gets turned upside down. Stephen never acts like a defendant. He doesn't whimper or whine. He's not afraid. He's not obsequious toward his accusers. He doesn't bob and weave in order to avoid the accusations. In fact, he basically doesn't defend himself at all. Instead, over the course of this long speech, the longest in the book of Acts, Stephen the defendant becomes the prosecutor reading the indictment against his accusers. As soon as the high priest says, are these things so? Stephen begins a recital, a summary of Israel's history that is itself the indictment of his accusers. Stephen speaks against the law, they say. This Jesus is going to change the customs of Moses, which we've inherited, which we practice. But by the end of the sermon, Stephen is saying, you are the lawbreakers. He's echoing Moses and calling them stiff-necked people. He's echoing Jeremiah and saying that they have uncircumcised hearts and uncircumcised ears. He's echoing Isaiah in saying that they grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Stephen speaks against the law, his accusers say. You are the ones who receive the law as from angels and yet have not kept it. Stephen speaks against the temple. He says that this Jesus is going to come and dismantle this house. At the same time, he changes the customs that we received from Moses. And Stephen's entire speech, his entire defense, as it were, his entire indictment is about the temple. From the time of Abraham on, the goal of of God's work with his people was to bring them to this place, the place of the temple. That was promised to Abraham. In the wilderness, Moses received the oracles of God, which he passed on to the people. And he built the tabernacle at the foot of Sinai. That was the beginning of, of this place. Once they entered the land, Solomon built a permanent house in this place, the very place where Stephen is standing as he's on trial. But that progression from the promise to Abraham through the tabernacle, through the temple, is not finished yet. Stephen emphasizes something that all of the Jews there should have known. Heaven is my throne, the Lord says. Earth is my footstool. Can any house contain me? If you want to be in the Lord's presence, if you want to be in his sanctuary, you need to have the heavens open so that you can enter into heaven. And Stephen, at the end of the speech, sees the heavens open and sees the Son of Man standing in his glory. The progression from the promise to Abraham through the tabernacle, through the temple, has come to its climax in the temple. And what of the Jews? What have they done with the temple? Moses received a pattern from the mountain, which he used to build the tabernacle. But at the foot of the mountain, 
Israel was forming gold into a pattern of a golden calf. The same Greek word is used. The tupos, the type that Moses saw on the mountain, was supposed to be the place of worship. But they formed tupos, the form of a golden calf, at the foot of the mountain. They were supposed to worship the living God at this house. But now, like the idolaters that Isaiah condemns, they're worshiping a handmade, man-made house. The golden calf was a substitute for Moses, but now the house, the temple, has become a substitute for the Lord. As long as we maintain the house, the Jews think, the Lord will be with us. The Lord will show us his favor. Stephen speaks against the temple, his accusers say. And Stephen immediately, exactly turns that around against his accusers and says, you are the ones who speak against the temple. Stephen, in fact, uses the very law, the very scriptures he's accused of abandoning as the indictment against his accusers. Stephen is supposed to be one that ignores the law, that rejects the law. But he uses the law, summarizes the whole history of Israel, and that itself is the indictment against Israel. The indictment is very specific. Israel has had a history, a long-standing history, of rejecting the very ones that saved them. Joseph is opposed by his brothers, but it's the rejected brother, Joseph, who provides food in Egypt, who keeps his brothers alive so that they can go back and be buried in the promised land. It's the rejected brother who's the Redeemer and the Savior. Moses is rejected not once, but twice. He's rejected when he visits the people for the first time. Who made you a judge and a ruler over us? So Moses flees. Then he comes back and he leads the people out. The rejected Moses becomes the savior of Israel, doing signs and wonders in the wilderness, providing bread and water in the wilderness, and yet they reject him. This is Israel's history, an entire history of rejecting the ones that the Lord has sent to save and deliver them. And because of that, the promises that the Lord gave to Abraham, the promises of a land and seed and this place, a land, rescue from slavery, and a place for worship. Israel has lost those promises, repeatedly lost those promises. They've lost the land. They've turned back to Egypt. They've lost the place of worship or are in danger of losing the place of worship. They claim Abraham as their father. But when they reject again and again the ones the Lord sends to save them, they become an anti-Abrahamic people. They lose everything that Abraham was promised. Every servant the Lord has sent to Israel, every servant is a suffering servant, despised and rejected by the people. Stephen knows, like the apostles, that the entire Old Testament is about the Christ. That's what Jesus taught his disciples after his resurrection, before his ascension, He taught them, beginning with Moses and going through all the prophets, he taught them everything concerning himself in all the scriptures. The whole scripture is about the suffering and the glory of the Christ and the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness to the nations. John knows that. Peter knows that. They've been preaching that in the first six chapters 
of Acts. And now Stephen shows that he knows the same thing. Everything in Israel's history has been pointing to this moment. All these things are written for our instruction, as Paul says, on whom the ends of the ages have come. The final climactic rejection has occurred and is occurring in the very moment that Stephen is speaking. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. They rejected David's house. Now they rejected the Savior, the Savior, the Christ. And they're rejecting him again and rejecting the apostles. Stephen knows that this entire history applies and foreshadows exactly what's happening to him and to the other apostles and leaders in the church. And in fact, the history that he tells is precisely attuned to what's happening. Stephen is telling about ancient history, as it were, but the ancient history he tells is applying and being enacted and being repeated in the very moment that he's telling this history. Remember back to the upper room during the Last Supper. In John's account of the Last Supper, there is no Last Supper, but there is a long discourse in which Jesus warns his disciples about what they're going to be facing. They persecuted me, Jesus says. They will persecute you. They hated me. They will hate you. Everything that I've suffered, you're going to suffer. They're going to kill me, and they will kill you. When they kill me, they'll think they're offering service to God, and when they kill you, they think they're doing it in obedience to God. Jesus is filling out what he says in the Luke passage we just heard in our gospel reading. His disciples are in fact going to have to take up the cross and follow Jesus and suffer exactly the same things Jesus suffered. But it's worse than that. Because they're not only going to suffer what Jesus suffered, they're going to suffer what Jesus suffered in the absence of Jesus. That's another theme of the upper room discourse. I'm going away. I'm going back to the Father. I'm going away, and you can't come where I'm going. You're going to be hated and persecuted and rejected from the synagogue and killed, and I won't be there, Jesus says. Shocking thing for the apostles. They spent three years following Jesus around. Jesus has been their shield. Jesus is the one who's protected them. Jesus is the one who's guided them. When they were afraid, Jesus was there to dispel their fears. Do not be afraid, he keeps saying. And now he's leaving. And the worst for the disciples is still to come. He's leaving at just the wrong moment. But then Jesus reassures the disciples. I will go away, but I won't leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you, Jesus says. And I will be with you. When you're persecuted, when you're hated, when you're rejected from the synagogues, when they try to kill you, I will be with you. And how? How is Jesus going to be with them? Jesus isn't talking about what we call the second coming. That's not the purpose of the upper room discourse. He's not talking about his final coming as judge to judge the living and the dead. He's talking about his coming in and through the Spirit. I'm going away but I will be with you because the Lord, the Father will send another comforter who will be with you. How can Jesus be absent and present at the same time? How can he be absent in body and flesh and yet be present 
to us. It's because it comes to us by the Spirit. That upper room discourse is the background, really, to the whole book of Acts. The Spirit comes at the beginning of the book of Acts, and when the Spirit comes, Jesus is with the disciples. And whatever they face, whatever opposition they face, Jesus is with them. And as soon as the Spirit comes, Jesus begins making replicas of Jesus from the unlikely material of the twelve and the unlikely material of other disciples. The frightened, confused disciples are molded by the Spirit into replicas of Jesus. Jesus will come in the Spirit. He will come as the one who blows where he wills. You hear where he's coming from. You hear where he's going, but you don't know, you don't know, but you don't know where he's going. You hear the sound of him, but you don't know where he came from. That's, that's what it is. You hear the sound of him, but you don't know where he came from or where he's going. That's how Jesus is going to be present. But when the Spirit comes and Jesus is with them, the Spirit takes flesh. The Spirit takes the flesh of Peter. The Spirit inhabits the flesh of John. Jesus comes to the disciples. Jesus comes back to the Jews in the flesh of the church, in the bodies of the disciples, because the Spirit is busy making replicas of Jesus. And there is no replica of Jesus that's more like Jesus than Stephen. Everything we know about Stephen makes him like Jesus. He is full of grace and power, like Jesus. He performs signs and wonders, like Jesus. When he gets into disputes with the people of the synagogue, they can't refute him, they can't overcome the spirit who's in him, just like Jesus in all his disputes. The Jews bring the same accusations against Stephen that they bring against Jesus. Stephen's accusers drag him before the Sanhedrin, just like the soldiers drag Jesus before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate. Jesus is taken outside the city gates and put to death outside the gates. And before Stephen is stoned, his accusers drive him outside the city. And as Stephen dies, Jesus takes the words of Jesus from the cross as his own. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, he says. As Jesus has said, Father, receive my spirit. Hold not this sin against them, Stephen says. As Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They, they encounter, the Jews encounter Jesus a second time in Peter and John, in the twelve, in the seven, in Stephen, later in Paul, in all the disciples of Jesus, in us, because the Spirit is with us and the Spirit has taken our flesh. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, Jesus says, on the road to Damascus. Not, Saul says, I'm persecuting your followers. Nope. You're persecuting me because these are my children. They have my spirit. They are my flesh. They are my body in the earth. And when they kill Stephen, they're killing Jesus a second time. But even this, even this double coming of Jesus was foreshadowed by Israel's history. Jesus comes in the flesh. He departs in the, in the flesh, but he comes in his spirit and he comes in the flesh of his disciples. And that's exactly, Stephen says, what Moses did. Moses came twice, just as Jesus did. 
Moses visited the Jews, visited Israel, the first time when he was 40 years old. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he intervened to save the Hebrew and killed the Egyptian. That was the Old Testament reading that we just heard. And you often hear people say, look at how gracious the Lord is. He takes a murderer like Moses and turns him into a leader of the Exodus. That's not Stephen's take on Moses. Moses delivers the oppressed. He takes vengeance for the injustice that the Egyptian is doing to the Hebrew. He does a righteous act in killing the Egyptian. And he thinks this is the time when the Lord is visiting his people. The Lord has chosen me as an agent to visit his people. But it was not to be. Moses was expecting a deliverance then and there. This is the beginning of the deliverance. He kills one Egyptian and the Jews are going to follow him. They'll rise up against the Egyptians and they'll all go on to the promised land. But it's not to be. Why? Because Israel does what it always does. Rejects the one who come, rejects the one who comes as the deliverer. The next day, of course, Moses meets with the two Jews and they're fighting with each other. And he tries to intervene there too. And they say, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You're going to kill us too? And Moses leaves. Moses comes once and is rejected. And then as Stephen tells the story, Moses comes a second time, just like Jesus comes a second time through his spirit. Moses comes a second time, and this time he actually does deliver the people. In Moses' second advent, the second visitation, that one actually leads to an exodus, leads to a deliverance, and leads to Israel, leads Israel out to the edge of the promised land. Stephen tells the story of Moses, which takes up more than half of the speech that he gives. He tells the story of Moses as a story of two advents because he knows that he's living through the same thing and the Jews are confronting the same thing. Just as Moses came the first time and was rejected, departed and came back a second time and delivered the people, so Jesus came once in the flesh, was rejected, but has come back in the Spirit. And now, as Moses was in his second advent, the Spirit, too, is being rejected. Jesus is being rejected again in the flesh of his disciples. Moses came and led the people out of the land of Egypt, out toward the land of promise. But the people didn't want to follow him. They didn't want to obey him. They wanted to substitute a golden calf. They're going to say, this golden calf is the one who led us out of Egypt, not Moses. Moses went up on the mountain. He disappeared. We don't know where he is. We need somebody to lead us. Let's make a golden calf. He'll lead us into the land. Both times Moses visited the people, he was rejected. And both times Jesus visits his people, he's rejected. He's rejected in his own flesh. He's rejected in the spirit. He's killed in his own flesh. And now they kill Stephen. The Jews have killed Jesus twice. And this is the fundamental breach between the elites of the Jews, the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem, and the church, the infant church. There's been an escalating conflict all through the early chapters of Acts. The Jews have been arresting and imprisoning and trying the apostles. 
Peter and John are brought in. They're in prison. Peter and John are brought in and they're beaten. All the apostles are brought in. They're warned and they're beaten. But now it's come to a head. Now the Jews taste blood. Now, for the first time, a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, has been killed. And once the Jews have tasted blood, they want more of it. Immediately after Stephen's death, Saul, who is there watching the robes of those who are stoning Stephen, goes off on a rampage, persecuting not just in Jerusalem, but pursuing them into Judea and Samaria and as far as Antioch. He's going to go as far as he needs to go to stamp out this movement. This is the decisive breach between Israel and the leaders of Israel and the church. It's the, the martyrdom is the place where the wheat and the tares begin to separate. There's been conflict, but the conflict has been confused. Now there's a clear line of demarcation. You're either with Jesus and with those who have the Spirit, or you're with the persecutors. You're either with the martyrs or you're with the killers. That division has been forming throughout the early chapters of Acts, but with the death of Stephen, it breaks open. And we have a decisive division between the leadership of Israel and the people of God, the New Testament, Israel, the church. And that decisive breach between Israel and the church takes a geographic and spatial form. Because of the martyrdom of Stephen and because of the persecution that Saul begins, the followers of Jesus begin to leave Jerusalem. Fits with the typology. If Stephen has shed his blood, Stephen is like a second coming of Jesus. His blood is like the Passover blood. And the people are now embarking on an exodus from a Jerusalem that has become an Egypt. The diaspora from Jerusalem is like a new exodus. Jesus leading his people out of Israel, out from the temple elites, out into a new land. Jerusalem has become an Egypt, and with the death of Stephen, the people disperse. It's partly an escape. It's partly a flight. But notice where they go, beginning of chapter 8. Saul has to chase them into Judea. Saul chases them into Samaria. Some of them are going to end up in Antioch, in Syria, in Gentile territory. We've heard Judea and Samaria already in the book of Acts, right at the beginning of the book of Acts. When Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Up until this point, up until Stephen's death, everything has taken place in Jerusalem. The church has already begun its mission, but it's all in Jerusalem. And it's only with the death of Stephen that the mission begins to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Matthew's gospel, as we know, Jesus ends the gospel before his ascension with a great commission. Go, I'm sending you. Make disciples of all nations. Mark ends on a similar note. Go, preach the gospel to every creature. Luke ends with Jesus telling the disciples to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit. And the mission begins outside of Jerusalem. The mission begins only with the death of Stephen. Only with the second killing 
of Jesus. Only when the Jews not only attack Jesus in his flesh, but attack the spirits who has come in the flesh of the disciples and the apostles. That's the beginning of mission. Yeah, the, the Christians are fleeing from Jerusalem, but this flight is also ascending like every flight of every Christian in the history of the church. Every escape is a deployment. Every exodus is ascending. If God is sending you out from where you are, he's deploying you to a new place. And wherever you end up, that's the new mission field that you've been given. The believers who flee from Jerusalem take the word of God with them. And as they take the word of God, the word of God spreads outside of Jerusalem. For the first time, it spreads outside of Jerusalem. Because Jesus has been killed a second time in Stephen. The exodus has happened. And now the diaspora of the believers, the diaspora of Jesus' disciples has become. This exodus from Jerusalem is not just a flight or an escape. Exodus is always, always the first step on a path through the wilderness that leads to conquest. And the Jews, the the believers who are are fleeing from Jerusalem are on the first stages of a movement that's going to take them to the ends of the earth, ultimately, as we know, the end of the book of Acts, to Rome, the capital of the empire. Every escape, every flight is ascending and a deployment from the Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.